Good to go, my friend? Absolutely, wherever you are. Okay. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland. Welcome, one and all. The storm's probably going to hit in a few minutes, so I hope Skype's going to be okay, because it's really gotten windy out there in the last few seconds. Don't go anywhere tonight. I promise you, you're going to learn things tonight you never knew before. So settle in your most comfy chair, kick up your feet, and relax. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of choice going. Relax, tonight's your night. The book is called Alone, Britain, Churchill, and Dunkirk, Defeat into Victory. Our guest tonight is Michael Corda. What we're going to demonstrate tonight, folks, is how it is possible to overcome the most disastrous situations and turn them around into a victory via teamwork, Pure Determination and Defiance. Michael Corda is an English-born writer, and that's a good thing, and uh, a novelist who was editor-in-chief of Simon & Schuster in New York City. He is the best-selling author of books Hero, Clouds of Glory, and Charmed Lives. Michael has been awarded, are you ready for this, folks? The Order of Merit of the Republic of Hungary for his participation in the 1956 Hungarian Revolution. He lives just across the river from me, the St. Lawrence that is, in New York State. I want to welcome Michael to the show for the very first time and most definitely not the last time. How are you tonight, my friend? I'm absolutely fine. Thank you for having me. It is my great pleasure. Okay, folks, I want to begin tonight's show by reading a quote from the book, and it's a speech by Winston Churchill. It is from June 4th, 1940. Now, the speech was made just after the Battle of France and the troops had returned from Dunkirk. And it's a very famous speech. It goes, we shall go on to the end. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. That's my best English accent and Churchill impression. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> Not great. So I want to get to Churchill because the movie's about to come out, the, the new one. I, I saw the one earlier this year with Brian Cox. I thought he was amazing. I think the timing, unfortunately, he came out too soon, and he's probably not going to get a nod for an award. But there's a new one with Gary Oldman coming out. Let's talk about Churchill and what a character he was, and I mean that in all reverence, as well as he, his quirks and things. Can we tell the folks a little bit about Churchill and what it meant? Because this is a very essential point you make in the book. He's yeah. right there on the cover. He, he is right there in the cover as I move my fingers. It's essential for you to know, folks, that if it wouldn't be for Churchill becoming prime minister and standing strong, Lord Halifax probably would have got the nod, and we're going to talk about him as well. And the whole world would have been different because chances are, given the fact that Joe Kennedy, President Kennedy's dad, was already telling FDR at the time that maybe, in fact, there should be an armistice between London and Berlin. So can we talk about that dynamic for a second and how essential <laughs> Churchill was and how strong he was? The thing about Churchill was that he was wrong about almost everything in the 1930s. Um, uh, he was wrong about um, uh, the gold standard. Uh, he was wrong about independence for India, which he opposed vehemently. 
uh, he was disastrously wrong in supporting the marriage of Wallace Warfield Simpson to King Edward VIII. Um, and the result was that he, um, uh, he became regarded as a, an, an eccentric, a has-been, a failed political figure, a noisy adventurer. He had, as a young man, um, um, infuriated everybody by switching from the Conservative Party to the Liberal Party, and then back to the Liberal, back to, back to the Conservative Party again. And Churchill himself said of that, that um, it takes great courage to rat, but much greater courage to re-rat. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, so he, he was not by any stretch of the imagination taken seriously in the early and mid-1930s. However, he was a remarkable combination of things. He was eloquent. Um, he was, above all, courageous. He believed, and I believe with him, that the one element without which no great statesmanship is possible is courage, both personal courage and courage in supporting the cause that you believe in um, or that you believe you must follow. Uh, and Churchill had that. He was never afraid. Uh, early in the war, they built a, a, a bomb shelter at number 10 Downing Street. Um, and this is before they built the whole vast complex, which you could visit when you were in London, where Churchill had a bedroom. And it had metal covers on the bomb shelter. And whenever there was a, an air raid, uh, Churchill would go to the metal covers and open them so that he could look out at the guns going off and the aircraft and the bombs coming down. And when s somebody from the back of the bomb shelter said that he should probably close the bomb shelter doors, um, he said, uh, I am not afraid to meet my maker. It is my maker who is afraid to meet me. <laughs> and a voice of one of the secretaries come up from behind, from the depths of the bomb shelter and said, that's all very well for you, sir, but you have to take us with you. <laughs> now, let me just say that it is impossible to imagine that conversation taking place between Hitler and any of the secretarial staff. Churchill had a wonderful human aspect to him, uh, which, which, which I think was one of our great secrets in winning the Second World War was Churchill's ability to appeal to, be, to people beyond and above politics. There were people who disliked Churchill's politics. They voted him out of office in 1945 um, uh, in favor of a welfare state, which Churchill was then opposed to. Um, but even those who disliked his policies admired Churchill's ability to deal with people. When he was told on the 1st of June 1940, as the French army began to collapse, um, one of his aides, having just come back from France, um, said, Prime Minister, the problem with the French army is that the men do not know what they're fighting for. And Churchill said, well, if they don't know, they will soon learn it after they surrender. 
<laughs> he had that wonderful ability to instantly, he said once of Sir Stafford Cripps, um, a socialist uh, whom he disliked, but admired his intelligence, but disliked personally. He said in the House of Commons, there but for the grace of God goes God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Only Church Churchill folks, by the way, believed there was he was a book destined. Before the war, when Neville Chamberlain was prime minister, one of the ministers, a minister, was describing in Parliament a ghastly riot, would you believe it even then, between Jews and Arabs in Bethlehem, uh, which had cost many, many lives. Um, and as she tells the story of this frightful riot uh, with people being hacked to death, beaten to death with stones, and he, he ends his speech saying, and is it not shocking that these events should be taking place in Bethlehem, birthplace of the Prince of Peace. And in the back row of the House of Commons, Churchill can be heard in a stage whisper saying to somebody, but have we not always been given to understand that Neville was born in Birmingham? <laughs> oh, oh, there's a shot. <laughs> oh, shot. <laughs> It has to be understood that he was not the massive remote figure that Stalin appeared to have been. Um, although there was, in fact, a human Stalin, not a very likable one, but a human Stalin under the massive um, uh, uh, sort of bronze sculpture of Soviet leadership. That one of the things people liked about Churchill was not the eloquent speeches, but the fact that behind the eloquent speeches, he was a very witty and in, often sympathetic and often infuriating person, but very human. Why did people gravitate towards him during the war? Without, I feel, without Churchill. I mean, I remember my grandfather telling me about Churchill, my grandmother as well, my own mom, who was just a little child, uh, always talking about Churchill with reverence and awe. Why did people gravitate towards him and follow him through the war? People became doubtful of Churchill's leadership as early as 1942, um, uh, because in part Churchill's leadership was dependent on the role that Britain played. And as Britain began to play second fiddle to the United States, um, uh, political feelings against Churchill, which had been pretty much throttled um, in the British mind from 1940 to 1941, began to diminish. Nevertheless, the chief thing that Churchill had was, first of all, his wonderful ability to express elegantly what people felt but could not have put in words themselves. And, and that's a very important point. Secondly, it was, and I realize that I've said this before, that he exemplified a courageous, stubborn, positive view of events, however awful they were. Um, and, and he felt that that was not insincere. That was the nature of the man. Um, he was always not an optimist. He was too intelligent for that. But, but he took the courageous view of events, whatever they were, um, and was always able to say, A, that he had made a mistake, 
um, something you'll note that is lacking from presidential leadership in the United States as we speak. Uh, uh, and and B, um, to look at a situation at its darkest and say, yes, it is a defeat. As Dunkirk was a defeat, uh, we brought the majority of our soldiers home. We brought them home without boots, in most places without their rifles, if only because the Royal Naval officers wouldn't, for the most part, let them on board naval ships until they threw their rifle and their ammunition overboard. There's nothing a naval officer wants less on his ship than an armed soldier. Uh, so, so, so the moment they got on the, they didn't get on gangways, but on the rope netting to climb up onto naval ships, the, 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 somebody would lean over and say, you know, toss away the rifle, Sean, come on, <laughs> chuck it overboard. Um, and they threw, so, we brought back an army without boots or rifles for the most part. Um, but Churchill could see that so long as we had the army, we would somehow get the boots and the rifles, even if we had to buy them from the Americans um, uh, and pay dollars for them. We, those we could get. You could not replace the trained regular soldiers of the British army without whom you could not have built up a new British army because your trained regulars are the heart and soul of any army. Uh, and so he always was willing to admit, which is very rare in politicians, that he had been wrong. I also want to mention, folks, there's a Titanic connection in all this. Charles Lightoller, second officer of RMS Titanic, mm -hmm. sailed a boat to the shores of Dunkirk. I told you, folks, you're going to learn things tonight. There's more stuff like that in this book. Yes, You've got to get this book. Please, he's the one light hauler um, uh, who <laughs> um, was so insistent on enforcing women and children only on the lifeboats of the Titanic with, with his revolver um, that lifeboats left the Titanic half empty because he wouldn't let any men on board them. Um, so, but he was a remarkable man. He took his yacht, motor yacht, um, I think 30 or 40 feet long, um, with his teenage son. I suspect that the character in the film Dunkirk is a part based on him, um, south to Dunkirk. And they ended up by making so many trips that they took, I think, a total of over 5,000 people off the beach and back to England in, in, a, in, a, in an open 30 or 40 foot motorboat. Remarkable man. Lived on, oh, well after the war and taped a whole couple of hours for BBC on Dunkirk, which is worth its way to go. Like I said, folks, there's tons of stuff in this book you are going to appreciate. Alone, Britain, Churchill, and Dunkirk, defeat into victory. Defeat into victory. That's where we went tonight with our guest, Michael Corda, and the author of this great book. Michael, final question for you. Lessons learned. You're literally talking to students right across Canada, the internet as well, television on Canada, YouTube channel. There's 2.5 million views at this point on the show. What would you say to them? I would say them to them, first of all, speaking as somebody, although I've lost the accent, who is English and born in England, um, that although we don't hear it much anymore, the United Kingdom owes a tremendous debt in both World Wars to Canada. And the Canadians, though not directly threatened, 
uh, by the Germans and still less directly threatened by the Japanese, fought with extraordinary uh, tenacity, uh, mostly volunteers, uh, and that Canadians um, uh, were among the highest ranking uh, uh, aces in the Battle of Britain, um, and that the Patch Canada um, on uh, a, a, a British military uniform means something special or meant something special at any rate in the United Kingdom, both in World War One and World War Two. I would say, secondly, that World War II proves even more than World War I that however remote your country may seem from the quarrels that are engulfing the rest of the world, if those quarrels are severe enough, if they spread, then they will come even to Canada. Um, and therefore, uh, that Canada um, is a key and pivotal place in, 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 in world history. Um, finally, I would say to them that if anything is demonstrated by the retreat to Dunkirk and the evacuation from Dunkirk, it is that even under the worst of circumstances that, as Churchill put it, you must never, never, never give in. That, that surrender of a nation is always the worst thing you can do. When the Earl of Halifax, the British Foreign Secretary in Churchill's government, who was already talking to the Italian ambassador in London uh, on May 25th, before Dunkirk began, about what Hitler's peace terms might be and whether Mussolini could find out from Hitler um, what German peace terms would be. Um, and when Churchill found out about it, he was in no position to confront Halifax because even in this small war cabinet of nine people, Churchill was still uh, not yet in full control and certainly not in control of his own party, which would rather have had Halifax uh, replace Chamberlain than Churchill. Um, but Churchill saw this and he said, um, uh, surrender, talk of surrender is standing upon the slippery slope. And it's a wonderful phrase and it's true. And he went down from there to a meeting of the larger cabinet, which was about 30 people, in a room behind the speaker's um, uh, chair in, in the House of Commons, small room, I've been in it. Um, and in order to make himself heard and to be seen, he stood on a desk and he made a speech pointing out that we would never surrender. And he ended it by saying, and I'm quoting from memory, so I may not be totally accurate, but I'm almost accurate. He said, um, if our Lord Island story is to end at last, let it end when each of us is lying on the floor choking on his own blood. And the entire cabinet cheered him and clapped him on the back. And Adam, on the way back to number 10 Downing Street, after making that speech, a naval aide, Tommy Thompson, came to him and said that the Navy had lifted 27,000 men off the beach that day. So when he came back that night to the war cabinet meeting, he had the inner confidence to confront Halifax and say, break off all the talks, all talks with the Italian ambassador. We are never going to surrender. And we never did. So I try on each page of this book to tell you what happened that day. 
and to give it to you from all sides and accurately. So that you understand what was going on in London, what was going on in Paris, what was going on in Berlin, what was going on in Rome as a complete whole. It's um, whether I've succeeded, only you, the reader, can judge, but it's what I set out to do. You have absolutely succeeded with that question. There was a, a concerted attempt in England to, to attempt a beginning of conversations with the Germans. Um, Halifax is the one who actually first did that because he met with the Italian ambassador in London on May 25th to start this discussion. Um, uh, that feeling among the British evaporated, oddly enough, because of Dunkirk. Um, uh, Dunkirk is the victory that solidified the British people's determination to continue and win the war. A miracle had occurred. We had brought our army up the beach at Dunkirk in fishing boats and yachts and rowboats, the smallest boat used at Dunkirk was the Tanzine. She's in the Imperial War Museum, and she's an outboard motorboat, sailboat, 14 foot, four inches long. Um, and a miracle had occurred, a miracle which was repeated two months later, when in the Battle of Britain, the Royal Air Force soundly defeated the German Luftwaffe between July and the end of September, 1940. By that time, and long before that time, nobody in England was even remotely in favor of seeking out peace terms from the Germans. Uh, people were concerned about how we would continue the war. They were concerned about whether we could win it all by ourselves. But apart from um, fascists and neo-fascists, like Sir Oswald Mosley, the British fascist, fascist leader, uh, nobody at that point believed that the war could be ended without defeating Germany. And with those two victories in mind, even though they are, on military terms, small and narrow victories. I mean, one was the evacuation of men um, off, of, off of each. The other was an air war over um, southern England, which would not prevent the Germans from starting the serious blitz beginning in October and taking to night bombing of, of, of major English cities, which cost England, though it's forgotten largely now, 50,000 civilian war dead. Um, but people believed that we were going to win the war. These two miracles, and they are miracles, had, had, had firmly operated on English public opinion. And it's that wonderful, at the end of the book, when, when King George VI writes to his mother, Queen Mary, on the day France surrendered, and says... Um, I am, I'm, again, I'm quoting from memory, I'm, I am rather happy now that we no longer have any allies to be plight to or to pamper. Um, and, and, <laughs> and he spoke, I think, then for Britain um, and our empire, as it was then, and perhaps viewing Brexit, he still does. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I should tell you this. Ted Sorensen was a friend of mine, JFK speechwriter. I like that very much. What a wonderful man. What yeah. a, he changed my life. All that to say is I asked him, I said, which speechwriters do you admire the most? He says, I love eloquence. And he mentioned two. The first one was Dr. King. The mm -hmm. second one, of course, was Winston Churchill. And... And, and, and Churchill's war speeches are, I mean, they are, I have, they are 
beside my desk. Um, and um, I refer to them very, very often. Um, I am I, I, I find myself very often buoyed um, by Churchill's optimism and courage. And when things are at their darkest for me, um, I will tend to read a few pages of Churchill and think, well, you know, I can I can soldier through this. Um, and so far, Touchwood, I have. Um, but uh, of all the characters in the book, and there are many of whom I was going to say many of whom I'm fond. That's not altogether true. But there are many uh, who interest me enormously, uh, but none more than Churchill. Uh, I am. Uh, I, I, there is a story. Uh, I will shorten it drastically, um, which is a pity because it's best when told at length. But um, when Duncan go ahead, Sands, tell the whole thing. It's fine. Well, if you Duncan, want to stick around, we're good. Duncan Sands, I believe, married one of Churchill's daughters, both of whom worked for my uncle Alex at various times, Diana and whatever the name of the other daughter was. Um, and uh, and later, after the war, uh, when Churchill was already retired from his second stint as prime minister and was old. Uh, very old. Um, Duncan took a, one of his grandsons up to Charkwell, Churchill's house in the country, um, to meet Churchill. And all the way up, turns um, from his seat beside the, the, the driver in the front of the car to say to the little boy, who's I don't know, five or six years old, you know, this is going to be a very important day in your life because you're going to meet the greatest man in the history of the world. They get to Charkwell, they pull up, and as they're getting out, Lady Churchill comes down the steps and says, I am so sorry to have to tell you this, but Winston is not feeling well. He's bad cold. He's upstairs. They're a little disappointed, but the boys set out to play in the garden. They have tea. Um, and on the way home, Duncan turns to the boy and says, this is such a great pity because it would have been a wonderful thing for you to meet the greatest man in the history of the world. Something to remember for the rest of your life. And the little boy says, oh, but I did. And Duncan says, how could that be? The little boy said, well, I got bored playing in the garden. And so I came into the house and I went up this big flight of stairs. And the at the top of them was this big oak door. And I pushed it open. And there inside was a very old bald man with spectacles <clears throat> reading a newspaper and smoking a cigar. And I said to him, excuse me, sir, are you the greatest man in the history of the world? And he said, yes, I am. And now bugger off. <laughs> I can't think of a better way to end it. That's fantastic. It's one of my favorite Churchill oh, lines. Yes, I am. Yes, I'm I am. Bugger off. <laughs> That's perfect, Michael. I'm assuming most folks watching tonight have already seen the movie Dunkirk that was just on last summer, directed by Christopher Nolan, starring Kenneth Branagh and Tom Hardy. Michael, you've seen the film. I have. How does the movie differ from reality? Can you take us across the English Channel from Great Britain into the beaches of Dunkirk? What was the individual soldier really faced with? Is the movie accurate at all? I found the movie, insofar as I can judge it, to be enormously accurate. I also, I think, not only one of the best war movies I've ever seen, uh, but just simply introduces you to what is happening and leaves you um, to make it out for yourself. To me, that was brilliant and very effective. And I also think it's a breakthrough 
in terms of making more films because it shows you the events through the eyes of four separate people who don't know each other and will never meet each other and have nothing to do with each other. Right. So that you see it through the eyes of a Spitfire pilot, uh, limited to probably less than 10 or 15 minutes over the beach by his, his fuel, uh, through a senior naval officer on uh, the ground um, at Dunkirk Harbor, uh, through a, an Englishman steering his own boat with his teenage son and his teenage son's best friend yeah. south to Dunkirk across the channel, and a young British soldier. And we see at the very beginning of the film the young British soldier run out onto this beach and look to either side of it and seeing that there is there at that point about 100,000 men on a very narrow beach. And we absolutely understand what is happening and get what is happening. So it doesn't require explanations uh, what I like to call docudrama or phony scenes in which we see general holding maps and trying to explain to us what the situation is. We also share something else in common, Montreal. I was born there. You visited the city when you were just a young guy. Can you tell us about Operation Pied Piper and your own experience in Montreal? Well, you know, this is a complicated but interesting subject, which I deal with in alone. Although the British government in the 1930s was accused of being um, uh, of being ignoring reality and not facing up to the fact that war was coming. The truth is that the British, in the most pessimistic and thorough way, prepared for uh, a terrible war that would begin with a dreadful bombing raid, in which it they supposed that London would be leveled by high explosive, um, depopulated by poison gas. This gloomy point of view was in part introduced by my father when he made H.G. Wells' film, The Shape of Things to Come, into a motion picture called Things to Come, which opens um, with the destruction of London in a mass bombing raid designed by my father, and which had a devastating effect on Stanley Baldwin and on Neville Chamberlain, um, as well as on Hitler, convincing everybody that that's how the war will begin. As a matter of fact, nothing of the kind happened at the beginning of the war. The Germans were in no way equipped to do anything of that kind. But the consequence of that is that the British government, for example, ordered several hundred thousand cardboard um, coffins um, for, the, for, for use in burying the casualties, which they assumed would be monstrous. Um, they selected mass grave sites all over southern England um, and north of London, and they issued every man, woman, and child in the United Kingdom with a gas mask. No other country made such preparations for war. So I think that there was, a, on the one hand, a sense that war was coming and that it would be terrible, worse, in fact, than it even was. Uh, and on the other hand, a desperate ability to prevent that from happening. And the only way that anybody could, could think of preventing that was to give Hitler what he wanted, or at any rate, what he said he wanted. Do you remember going to Montreal at all, or any of that experience whatsoever? Nobody could forget um, crossing the Atlantic on the Empress of Canada with 500 other children, 499 of whom were sick all the way across the Atlantic. Um, I myself as it happens, I have a, uh, a very good stomach for bad seas. Um, and all of them with a cardboard package around their neck containing 
their papers with their name written on it. It was, I would say, an unforgettable journey. <laughs> but I, I do not compare my um, discomforts in any way to the sufferings of many millions of people in the Second World War. But I do remember uh, very clearly how pleased I was to see the Canadian shore arrived. It's funny, you just mentioned another coincidence about Montreal, and uh, folks, in case you're unaware, the Kenneth Branagh character is kind of a composite character indeed, but he is basically characterized after another famous Montrealer. His name is Commander James Campbell Clouston. He was born August 31st, 1900, and he died 3rd of June, 1940. Now, what happened, he was responsible for exponentially raise the amount of troops that were able to escape. And unfortunately, in one of those trips, as he was leaving Britain to Dunkirk, his ship was hit, it sunk, and he drowned. You had mentioned something, the appeasement aspects of it. Can we talk a little bit about, because I'm going to tell you, my demographic is primarily uh, university students. Very often, I'll ask them who JFK was, they're not sure. <laughs> I've had students ask me what the Holocaust was. This is why I do this show. It's a volunteer show for me. I don't make any money off of it. It's important for me to let the kids know, the students know. They'll kill me if I say that. What's going on? This show is uh, syndicated right across every campus in Canada. It's on Canadian television as well. Okay. The appeasement, the Munich appeasement. Many people won't know that there's a whole leading up to the beginning of the war. Can we talk about the Munich appeasement and Chamberlain, Hitler, and we'll get into Halifax after. How's that? Yes, I think so. Uh, I'm not censorious of the Munich Agreement of 1938. Um, I think that uh, Stanley Baldwin, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and Net who was succeeded by Neville Chamberlain, that both of them come in for a very high degree of criticism today for appeasing the Germans. But the truth of the matter is in 1938, when Hitler, having already annexed Austria, remilitarized the Rhineland, recreated uh, Germany as an armed force, when Hitler made it clear that he wanted to take the furthest western portion of Czechoslovakia, a country that be, had only been created in 1919 out of bits and pieces of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, with its German population. There was nobody who wanted to go to war to prevent that. Um, nor was there any way that that would have made a difference. There was no way that the French could reach Czechoslovakia or the British. Uh, egged on by Neville Chamberlain, who very much wanted peace, um, the British and the French agreed to secede to Germany a portion of Czechoslovakia. Uh, that was described, always described now, as appeasement. Chamberlain was greeted as a hero, as if he had landed from heaven when he brought home the piece of paper that he famously waved at, Hes waved at Heston Airport and said, um, what we have now is peace for our time. The, you should read the encomia in the New York Times and in the Canadian newspapers and in every newspaper and in every language in the world for the fact that he had brought back peace. We now look on that because we went to war a year later in 1939 as a huge mistake. But it is, first of all, clear that Chamberlain um, knew very well that the British Army was not in any way prepared for a war, uh, that the Royal Air Force would not receive 
uh, Spitfires and Hurricanes with their eight guns and Merlin engines until 1939 and 1940, and that the radar network in southern England, which was until the atomic bomb, the biggest secret of the war, would not be ready until mid-1939 or early 1940. Uh, he had, therefore, every reason um, to uh, appease the Germans until such time as Britain would be in a better state of armament. About the French, we won't even discuss it because they weren't ready in 1938, and they weren't any more ready in 1939. Uh, we were not ready, in fact, in 1939 to fight the Germans, but we were beginning to be ready, uh, at least to meet them equally in the air. And, of course, because Britain is Britain, always ready to meet them with superior force on, on the sea. Uh, so I don't think that the, the, the odium heaped on Neville Chamberlain for the 1938 Munich Agreement is really just. Uh, we now see that as having been a huge mistake, but it's difficult to say what else he could do. And of course, in a democracy, if you know that your people are not willing to go to war, then it is a huge mistake to declare it. The other thing too is, folks, I want you to know that Germany was suffering from something called, and I say suffering because this is what led to the Second World War, the Versailles Treaty. And basically what happened after the First World War Germany was kind of divided up in a certain sense, and certain parts of German land, Austro-Hungarian Empire countries were created. Czechoslovakia is one, the Sudetenlands another one, um, Poland had pieces added to it, etc. I guess my question to you is, knowing this, just so the students understand, did we ever really finish fighting World War I? Or was that just a 26-year period where we were just building up to the inevitable? I don't believe we finished fighting World War One yet. I agree with you completely <laughs> on that one, sir. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the Balkan Wars um, uh, were merely an extension of World War One. Uh, most of the what are now Balkan countries were at, at one time parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, the the Russian uh, attempt to redominate the Ukraine and Eastern Europe um, and to threaten the Czechs and the Poles. Uh, is a repetition of events that happened in World War One in a different form, of course. Uh, World War One, the was Middle East as well. If I can just interrupt, there, Middle East as well. Uh, that was all divided up after World War One. Of course, of course. Uh, the the uh, T. Lawrence's uh, raising the Arab revolt that brought down the Turkish, uh, the Ottoman uh, Turkish Empire. We still live with the consequences of. Uh, and, and so World War I was an event on such a colossal, cataclysmic scale, uh, which cost the lives in four years of over 41 million people, uh, that we are still living in its ruins and its shadows. Now, the 26-year period between the end of World War I and the beginning of World War II is merely a reshuffling of that. The Germans never accepted their defeat. Um, they all... Uh, always resented the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. Um, uh, and it was obvious to everybody that they would either have to, that would either have to be renegotiated or the Germans would sooner or later somewhere fight over it. Um, that doesn't excuse, of course, um, subsequent events. Uh, the one thing that was not obvious to anybody in 1939 is that Hitler was not only a devious Machiavellian 
and skilled politician and an extremely able maneuver in foreign policy, uh, but that he also had in mind um, broader and more devastating uh, solutions to Germany's place in the world than anybody could imagine. Um, so we can't, we can't assume that in 1938 or 1939, much as people may have disliked Hitler and much as they may have feared and resented the Germans, that they would imagine that the Germans would go about committing mass murder on an industrial scale. Your family, your family comes from Hungary. It is also Jewish. Can you tell about when your dad, your uncle, and your uncle left Hungary for the pastures, yeah, greener uh, pastures of Britain? Was there a rising anti-Semitism at the time? I think that the level of anti-Semitism in Hungary has always been pretty steady. Um, it has never had a, 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 um, a need to rise. It rose somewhat in the late 30s and reached its, its peak in 1944 when half a million Hungarian Jews were sent to Auschwitz to be murdered. And indeed, Auschwitz was kept open long after the Germans had wanted to close and destroy it, just in order to receive and kill. Uh, the bulk of the of the Hungarian Jews. Um, on the other hand, uh, speaking from my father's side of the family, my mother's side of the family is completely English. Um, uh, the vast majority of Hungarian Jews were almost completely assimilated into Hungarian life. Magyar speaking. Um, uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire benefited from a first class education system in which Hungarian Jews participated fully. Uh, you could not have expected that in Hungary of all places with that level of assimilation um, that uh, the Holocaust would strike with the effect that it did. Poland is easier to understand because many of the large population of Polish Jews still spoke Yiddish, uh, still wore beards, uh, and not all of them, of course, but they looked different. Most of the Hungarian Jews looked and spoke like other Hungarians. Uh, that did not save their lives, of course. I think it's emblematic of, the, of, of that level of anti-Semitism that even though half a million Hungarian Jews were killed, and even though the, hung, the Jewish population of Hungary is now very small indeed, that the Hungarian government still blames their troubles on the Jews, which goes to prove a very old but true saying, which is that you don't need Jews in order to be anti-Semitic. <laughs> possibly. <laughs> Simon Zero. Wiesenthal, folks, says that... Uh, <laughs> the Simon Wiesenthal Center, folks, by the way, says that anti-Semitism is the biggest it has ever been in the world right now. And uh, I had Alan Dershowitz on the show and we were talking and I said, you know, everybody says the oldest vocation in the world is prostitution. I said, no, it's not. It's hating Jews. So, <laughs> you know, it just goes on. If a bus is late, you blame a Jew. Right. Yeah, it's course, ridiculous at this point. If, if, if the potato crop fails in Poland, where the Jewish population is now about 3,000 instead of 3 million, people Jews. will still say the Jews did it. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether China, with its enormous population, develops anti-Semitism, because there they will be developing anti-Semitism pretty much totally without Jews. Uh, so it, it, that would be an interesting uh, phenomenon. But I am enough of a pessimist to think that the Chinese may find their way to do that. Let's talk some more about Churchill. Now, we have this 
horrible situation unfolding in France at this point because the Americans aren't in the war yet, folks, by the way. This is 1939 when the war starts. So the Americans would only come in Pearl Harbor, which is December 7th, 1941. So you get two years in there, a little bit more, where Britain is fighting alone with the Commonwealth. Canada was part of that. And France. So they've declared war. They're over in France. They've set up a defensive line to prevent the Germans from coming into France, Belgium. That collapses completely. The Germans just overtake it. They split the two forces. You've got the French in the south and the British, primarily the British, in the north. So what happens is the British have to back up all the way to Dunkirk, and they're stuck on this little city, and they're stuck on the beaches to get out. 400,000 men. How do you do that? This is when Churchill becomes Prime Minister, May 10th, 1940. Can we pick it up there and how strong a character Churchill was to carry that horrible situation through? I can, but I should first say that one of the things that I strive to do in a law is to be um, equitable and fair to everybody. Uh, fair to the Belgians, although um, they, they collapse, as you would expect, under the weight of an enormous German attack which they were not prepared for. Uh, fair to the Dutch, because the Dutch only were able to survive for two or three days, and their cities were terribly bombed. The bombing of Rotterdam uh, was uh, an event that had never taken place in war before. Um, uh, the, the, the absolutely ruthless uh, bombing of, um, of, of, a, of a city in which there were no military installations at all and just civilians. Um, I, I try, because I'm a Francophile, um, uh, as Churchill was, to be absolutely fair to the French. They, th their tactics were outmoded, uh, except in the case of Charles de Gaulle, who I described very clearly in the book, led to or three remarkable and successful attacks. I should also mention, folks, Charles de Gaulle had written a book on tank tactics. And guess who ended up using it? Not the Western Allies. The Nazis ended up using it. How ironic is that? To great success. Yes, de Gaulle's Berlame de Métier uh, sold, uh, I believe, 800 copies in France and was a great disappointment to him, but sold thousands and thousands of copies in Germany and was read aloud in German to, the Hitler, to Hitler um, and understood. He said, in fact, that's what I want. That's what I have to have. Uh, he absolutely understood the importance that the tank could play in war. Um, the older German generals did not accept that. They were not sympathetic to it, and they did not understand it. Um, the, the French had more, bigger, better armed tanks than the Germans did, but they used them defensively. They thought of their tanks as supports for infantry. The Germans would, had the good fortune um, to have German tank commanders who understood that the tank could travel enormous distances in one day and that it would punch through the allied lines and then being behind the allied lines would scatter people away from their headquarters and keep going and in fact uh rommel uh, who crossed the Meuse, i think on may 13th 1940 uh in command then of um the seventh panzer, panzer division uh, was doing between 90 and 100 miles a day uh, the German generals were aghast because they were afraid, and rightly so, 
that if the attack forces got too far ahead of the infantry, which were still advancing on foot with the commander on on, on a horse and artillery being horse-drawn. The Germans invaded France in May 1940 with over half a million horses. Um, that a gap would open between the armor in front and the infantry trying to catch up and that the Allies would exploit that. And Churchill saw that that could be done. He was very good at looking in a map. But there was no way in which, uh, in which the French army could exploit that. And there's a terrible scene in the book. It's a Actually, it's a wonderful scene, but it's a terrifying scene, um, in which when it is explained to him that the French cannot withdraw their army from Holland, which is collapsing, and which is their reserve, to, a, to carry out the attack that he has in mind, because the Belgian railway workers are on strike and will not ship the French tanks or artillery. And Churchill says at a meeting at, at, the, at the Elysee Palace, shoot the strikers. And, and after the war, he asks everybody who was present at the meeting whether he really said that because he does not think he did. And they all reply very clearly, yes, you did. And you know something, had he had the power to do it, he would have done it. Yeah, could you imagine, folks, this is something I learned in the book, too. And you must be clairvoyant because this was, I was just heading there. Um, that the striker, the, the uh, dock workers at Calais were on strike uh, also in France, and the Belgium railway workers were on strike. Here you've got your two countries, your home countries being invaded by the Germans, and all of a sudden you've got these people on strike and they're refusing to, to move materiel. That's so imperative to defend your own country. It's absolutely mind boggling. It, it, I, perplexes me to this day. I want to read another quote from the book. Sure, go ahead, please do. One of the things that differentiates us from Nazi Germany, after all, is is that in France and in England and in Canada, um, we took then and take now seriously the right of people to strike, to disagree, um, not to do what they're told. Um, and, um, and for a period of time, um, that did not apply to the Germans. And they they were thus much more efficient and much better organized and more warlike than we are. Uh, and, and I grant you, it seems to us now that it was criminal for the Belgian railway workers to be on strike um, and the French uh, dock workers to be on strike just when it came time to unload the, 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 the British tanks at, at, at French ports. Um, but we have to understand to some degree that that's what we were fighting for. <laughs> I promised you at the beginning, folks, you're going to learn stuff. And this stuff is amazing in this book. The book is called, by the way, Alone, Britain, Churchill, and Dunkirk, Defeat into Victory. Michael Corda is the author and our guest tonight. Now, from the book, it says, Guderian's model was the great Stonewall Jackson who Shenandoah Valley campaign in 1862. Are you ready for this? provided the inspiration for German armored warfare tacticians. Can you explain that to us? That's a, that was amazing to me when I read that. It helps that I wrote a very long biography of Robert E. Lee, um, and Stonewall Jackson, of course, plays a major part in Robert E. Lee's life. Um, but the Stonewall Jackson Shenandoah campaign is the perfect example. Of course, he did not have wheeled vehicles or mechanics, but it's the perfect example of how fast movement, sweeping behind an obstacle and then 
over another obstacle like hills or mountains to come up behind the enemy, fighting a battle, then withdrawing, and once again, circling around and always aiming, not for a frontal attack, from a, but for, for an attack from the rear or the flanks simultaneously. Within a period of months, he not only recaptured the entire Shenandoah Valley, um, got as far as the Potomac, um, but had he had more troops, he would probably have gotten to or close to Washington. Uh, German armored specialists took this campaign as the model of what should be done. And there was a period in the 1930s when the Shenandoah Valley was full of vacationing German officers with their binoculars and their Leicas and little leather bags over their shoulders because they were looking. The Battle of Fort Republic to them, translated into terms of tanks rather than cavalry and infantry, was the key to exploiting uh, terrain even when the enemy was superior in numbers. And it's exactly what they did. So so the, the, the central figure in the two central figures uh, behind Germany's amazing strength in, in armor in 1939 and 1940 was Stonewall Jackson and Charles de Gaulle. There is another fascinating fact, and we were talking about resupplying the German oncoming tanks. Folks, I didn't know this. I read it in the book once again. Germans were using the left-behind gas stations. People would just abandon their own gas stations, and they'd just pull in. Imagine a tank pulling into a gas station. They'd yes. fill up and leave. <laughs> and the days before credit cards. Uh, but let me, let me say that, that even more to the point, Although the French tanks were bigger, better armed, and more heavily armored, um, the French had designed their tanks so that they had many different gas tanks, each with its own separate filler. Uh, that makes refueling a tank, particularly if you're using des bidons, um, uh, a, a, a one-liter a, a one tin can um, to pour gas into the, a very long, cumbersome, messy, sloppy, and dangerous business. The Germans designed all their tanks with one filler, um, like a car, for all the different gas tanks. However many gas tanks there were in the tank, there was only one filler and filler cap. Now, it's, it seems like a minor and small um, feature, but it's a design point that is, the, that makes a huge difference, in fact, in practical war terms. In addition to which, the Germans built into all their tanks, however small, um, a radio operator and a radio, so that the tank commander could be in touch with the tanks behind them, and so that the tank commander could be in touch with the infantry as they came up, and the artillery, more important, and above all, that the tank commander could be in direct touch with the dive bombers in the air, so that the Germans could develop a strategy in which they attacked in four planes, artillery, armor, infantry, dive bombers, simultaneously. And that was devastating. We just had no experience with it. And the only experience there was prior to that was the attack in Poland. And you would think that the commanders, the head of the commanders, would look at those tactics and say, hey, maybe we should adjust some of our tactics just in case something like that happens in France and Belgium. But they didn't. We were still kind of fighting the war, reacting instead of acting. Well, all generals, of course, are always pre 
attempting to prepare to fight the previous war um, and, and also selecting um, the equipment and the weapons which would have won the previous war if they lost it. <laughs> so, so, um, and that's not a particularly Belgian, Dutch, French or English problem because it applies just as much to the United States and to Canada as well. Um, uh, so that's that's not so surprising. Also, Poland wasn't regarded as a first-rate military power. So when the Germans attacked it, uh, particularly since the Soviets um, took over the, the 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 eastern half of Poland, the Poles were effectively like an egg being stamped on by two people wearing boots. Um, and and although they fought very well, uh, it was a hopeless struggle from the first. And so it's not certain that that the French generals or come to that, the British generals or Canadian generals would necessarily have learned anything from the defeat of Poland. And even if they had learned something, there would have been no time to put it into effect for a mass army. The French army in 1940, uh, when the Germans invaded France, consisted in Europe alone of 3,500,000 men. That's a lot of people. Uh, it's, it's, um, and so the notion that in 1939, you could start to rearm, rethink, retrain 3,500,000 men who were not after all professional soldiers. They were called up civilians. Uh, the, the French had universal military service as almost everybody but the British and the Canadians and the Americans had uh, at that time. Uh, would have been hopeless even had the French generals wanted to, which they didn't. The JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brendan Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com. Well, I should clarify something. I know the students are listening right now, thinking, "Gee, wasn't Russia at the time the Soviet Union? Weren't they allies during the Second World War? They were later on once later. Hitler attacked them but at that point they had signed a non-aggressive quote-unquote pact in other words they got into bed Stalin got into bed with Hitler and said listen we won't attack you you won't attack us well that didn't last too long because as we know Hitler went into Russia the Soviet Union and attacked them and that's when Nothing the Soviet Union second 1941 yes but, Quite, but yes uh, and, and the Russians got a very good price for the deal. They got half of Poland, all of the Baltic states, which had once been part of Russia until the Russian Revolution. Um, they got all of that back um, and uh, and a great deal more besides. Uh, uh, Stalin made a very good deal. Also, in bourgeois and middle upper and upper class circles, it was not unfashionable in France to say in the 1930s, uh, <clears throat> Hitler que Stalin, um, better Hitler than Stalin. And something of the same sentiments were prevalent um, in, in the English middle class, upper middle class and upper class in the 1930s. S Soviet Russia, communism and Stalin were seen as a greater and more direct threat to the Western way of life which I put in quotes, um, than, than Hitler. Uh, Hitler, after all, did not nationalize industries. He did not, uh, uh, he did not communize Germany. He merely Nazified Germany. Um, so you have to picture that, that, that to, to many people, not people on the left, but to many people in the middle and on the right, uh, Stalin seemed like a bigger threat than Hitler. 
Yeah, that's that's a very good point. Even the Vatican in 1933 folks thought that way as well, and they signed something called the Concordiat, which we won't go into now. Um, kind of an alignment, if you will. Before that in 1944. <laughs> <laughs> Our invasion of Normandy at last galvanized the Vatican into the possibility that the Germans might actually not only lose the war, but let the Soviet Union into Western Europe. Um, uh, but uh, it, it's difficult for people to understand the period and the background to Dunkirk without understanding the huge play of, um, uh, of one, um, one ideology nations against uh, what were in essence, whatever their other failings, democracies. Uh, so uh, the, the lure of fascism, whether it was Mussolini, who had a hold over people's imagination from the 1920s right through to the 1930s, uh, or Hitler, um, who also had a hold on people's imagination. Um, smaller nations like Hungary and Poland were uh, ruthlessly authoritarian and 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 um, uh, undemocratic, and and democracy was viewed, particularly in view of the American Depression in 1928 um, and the World Depression that followed. Democracy was viewed as a a, a failing card in the hand. It was a system that was collapsing, and on the horizon were these one-party ideologies that were rising with all the propaganda that accompanied them, the masses of men marching, the masses of tanks, the banners flying. The wave of the future was seen to be in Rome, Berlin, Moscow, not in Paris or London or Ottawa. Thank you so much for, for doing this for us tonight. I really, really do appreciate Thank it. You. The book is wonderful. I stayed up nights literally reading this. I could not put it down. It is. As they say, south of the border. Let, let, let me know, and perhaps there's a chance we could get together for a lunch or dinner, either here or, in, or easier in the city. And if I come to Canada and... Oh. Never, I'm very fond of Toronto and, and, and um, have often had a good time there. And Kingston's um, even closer. It's only an hour and a half north of Syracuse. Hmm? Kingston's Sorry? only an hour and a half north of Syracuse. That's exactly. There you are. Um, but in any case, we should try and get together for a meal. It would be uproarious. Fun I time. would love that. I would love that. Thank you so much. The book, folks, Alone, Britain, Churchill, and Dunkirk, Defeat, into Victory, Michael Corda, our guest tonight, and the author. I'm Brent Holland from The Brent Holland Show. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next time. <laughs>